Hey, welcome to this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. My guest today on the show is Dr. Audrey Tang. Audrey is a chartered psychologist, a mental health broadcaster. She's an award-winning business author and has written three key books. She's written four, in fact, but three are specifically aimed at leaders. The Leader's Guide to Mindfulness, The Leader's Guide to Well-Being, and The Leader's Guide to Resilience. And she's also a radio host because she has a community radio show, all of which, of course, focuses on things like mindfulness, well-being, and resilience. We're going to talk today about a couple of things, those things, but also why Audrey is in the business of training the kinds of services she offers her clients, how she does it using things like experiential learning, escape games, and of course, how she uses actors when it comes to presenting particular kinds of programs. Really, really fascinating. I found this fantastically entertaining, and I'm sure you will. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Training Business Podcast. This is the show for people like you and me. If you're a trainer, a consultant, a coach, someone who makes a living from the kinds of experience and knowledge that you have, perhaps you've got some intellectual property, you've developed some framework or written a book or have some kind of audience for your keynotes and basically you monetize and sell what you know to people who need what you know in the form of services and products, you're in the right place. Because every Thursday, either it's me or it's guests, usually guests and me, and we help you with areas of your business. Perhaps you've not done any of these things yet, but you'd like to. Well, guess what? We've got episodes going back five years. Authors, presenters, coaches, facilitators helping you to do the kinds of things that you need to do to make a success of your business. And that's why it's called the Training Business Podcast. If you've not yet subscribed, please click right now on follow or subscribe to be notified of episodes as they come out every single Thursday. Costs you absolutely nothing, means a lot to me and the team, and of course is free. Audrey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. The reason we're talking, well, there are many reasons, not least the importance of keywords which come up again and again and again. And those words are well-being, mindfulness, and resilience. On the one hand, we as consultants, trainers, coaches have to be aware of how to leverage these things, create these things, and satisfy these requirements in our clients, but also for ourselves as people running our own businesses, we need to be able to focus on our well-being because without us, our business doesn't function. We have to use mindfulness to help us to focus on things which are important and remove things which aren't like stress. And of course, speaking of stress, build resilience so we last the journey. Um, we have to help people and to do that, we have to help ourselves. Let's begin though by talking about your background. You're a charter psychologist, you're a mental health broadcaster and business author. What, what do these words mean to you personally? Mindfulness, well-being, resilience, and why? Well, ultimately, I'm a teacher. That's how I began. I taught in secondary school, I taught psychology, and I taught drama. And for me, 
those are the key parts of being a teacher, if nothing else. And they were what helped me get through. You, you deal with all kinds of challenging behaviors. And mindfulness gives you the clarity to be able to make a balanced and healthy or helpful decision. Resilience gives you the courage to give you to to go to the difficult place when you need to, to address behaviors, to address your own behaviors as well. You need to ask yourself, well, why did that happen? And what role did I play in that? But well-being overall, well-being for ourselves and well-being for the space that we create for other people is all about compassion. And that can be self-compassion because you are having to hold that space for a lot of people. As a teacher, that was something that was the core of the job that I did was you have to hold a safe space every single session. But also for yourself, you need to, you need to know that you're doing the best you can. You may have a good day, you may have a bad day, and that's okay. But also you need to think about the people you're supporting. What's right for them? What makes them feel better? What makes them better able to give the performance they want to give? Because I think one of the things that I've learned through my work, and this is largely through teaching and through training, is that people don't go into situations wanting to do a bad job. They they go in wanting to succeed, wanting to have the opportunity to be praised, wanting to have the opportunity to do well. And the workplace, the schoolroom, those are great places in order for that to happen. But in the same way as they can be the places where you can nurture someone, you can support them, you can you can talk about some of their weaknesses and their challenges and really nurture them through it, it can unfortunately also be a vicious cycle as much as it could be a virtuous one. So it could be a place where if the demands on you are so great and you're not feeling at your best and you don't have the space to to think clearly or to be compassionate for yourself, let alone anybody else, how can you possibly get the best out of other people? And so all those three things are so important, not just to get the best out of yourself, but to get the best out of the people that you're supporting. To me, they are the core functions of leadership. Yes. And there is a definitely um, a crossover between classroom education. When we think of that, we think of schooling, but also you could say business education, where we're working with people. So on that note, what got you from resident psychologist or psychology into running your own business? Your company's called Wellbeing Media. You deliver leadership training, which you've alluded to, um, and you run workshops. What got you interested in in doing that rather than providing um, psychology or the typical services that we associate with psychologists? I think ultimately it's because I am a qualified teacher. I trained as a teacher and fundamentally I have the skills and enjoy using the skills of teaching, imparting knowledge, seeing people grow. That's the most important thing Mm -hmm. for me. What I found, however, unfortunately, the schoolroom wasn't suitable to what I wanted to do. There was a lot more bureaucracy. There was a lot of covering other people, a lot of paperwork, which wasn't allowing you to teach. And so I had the opportunity then to do my PhD. I did that in the business school, but because it had such a psychological bent to it, uh, what I studied was something called emotional labor, which is the, the 
ex- emotional expression that teachers, nurses, frontline personnel have to put on for other people because there's an expectation of it, as well as um, the knowledge that they impart. And from that point, because I retained the skills of teaching, I not only taught my way through my PhD because I got a grant to fund it because of the teaching aspect, but I then moved into delivering training in learning and development for the NHS. That's where I was trained as a coach. And that's where I began to, I guess, grow in confidence to move out into working as a freelance trainer and a freelance coach at that point. Um, And I think because of the teaching, I was able to not only gain clients, but retain clients because I wasn't there just saying, oh, well, you need to do a bit of this. I could actually give you the practical tools in order to do it. So that's that's what I do there. In terms of well-being media, and the, that's actually the broadcasting front of what I do. So on the one hand, um, I deliver the training. I've always done that. I've always done that as myself. That's been something that I would do. But I have now set up a shop front, a studio with microphones, lights, cameras, (laughs) the whole lot. Because one of the key things I recognized, um, I'm a community radio host and I um, I meet a lot of people through training, but I meet a lot of people through interviewing them on, on the radio show, is that there's so much really good well-being work going on, but a lot of people lack the confidence to talk about it or lack the experience to talk about it. And as part of uh, my training work, I started delivering sessions for the BPS, the British Psychological Society, mm-hmm. met even more really wonderful academics, started delivering public speaking sessions. And the key thing I was coming up against the whole time was these were absolutely fascinating people, but they really struggled to put across what they wanted to say because they got nervous. And, and that's understandable because the skills of research, the skills of teaching are quite different to the skills of broadcasting. But because I had the radio show, I had them come on, relax them, sent them the questions. We had a little bit of a chat and they got comfortable with it. And because I was a psychology and a drama teacher, as I said, I know performance is a practical skill. You have to practice at it before you become really Mm. confident and good at it. The setup of the studio is to not only live stream really academic and rigorous mental health and well-being initiatives, research, theories, and so on, which are, I hope, um, going to give the best possible explanations and um, understanding of quite complex terms rather than your 60-second TikToks out there. And I I struggle with that sometimes. So I really want to get that rigor. But to get that rigor, you also need the experts. To get the experts to express themselves well, you need to give them practice. And hence, there's the broadcasting side, which Mm. supports all the training that I do as well. So my areas of training are public speaking and presentation skills, embedding confidence in people, but also the well-being resilience, stress busting, the more mental health, mental and emotional fitness side of things. So it's a full on job. I mean, it's, uh, it sounds like the amount of work that a team of people would have to do. Have you people supporting you in the organization in terms of some of the things you've mentioned? I do for the studio because Mm -hmm. I can't do that on my own. 
if mm-hmm. I'm interviewing someone or prepping them or supporting them with their media training, I need someone to produce the show. And so I do have a team who are doing the production side of things, sourcing guests and so on, a lot of the administration. And of course, for my own business, I have my own accountant and I have my own. Uh, who doesn't? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've got my own self-employed side of things. Right. Um, but in terms of delivering the training, I'm the person that CPD accredited to speak and to deliver the sessions. and. I'm the person people, it's interesting to say, I'm a bit like Marmite, you love me or you hate me, but my clients are repeat custom or I'm recommended so they know what to expect when they get me. And when I say I'm a bit like Marmite, I'm very interactive. I'm very engaging in the sense of I expect you to interact back. The way my sessions are set up, it is very interactive. The fact I've even got studio set up means I'm expecting you to get in front of the camera. Um, And so because of that, the clients that I get, they know who I am. They know what to expect of me. And and so that that way, I'm the person who needs to turn up to deliver it. But that works for me. But also, that's the bit I enjoy. I enjoy the performance. I enjoy the presentation. I enjoy the teaching. And whilst I need to do the other bits and need to have the awareness of the other bits, I would say those were my skills rather than my strengths. And that's something I teach people as well, is sometimes if you're having to do everything, like you say, there's a lot to do. But if you end up doing and getting very, very good at what I call skills, the things that you get good at, but you really don't enjoy, that becomes exhausting. And that's where you then start getting to the top of your game because you're always promoted on those skills and there's a little dopamine hit and there's another achievement and that's great. And then you get to the top and then think, how did I get here? I don't want to be here. And that's where you have to start unpacking that and asking people, what what are your strengths? Because Mm. I know you can do all those things, but your strengths are the things which you are good at, you can improve on, you can work at, but they energize you. They're things that you love. So as I come back to that allows now it allows me to do my teaching and the training and that side of things, the presenting side of things, while still understanding how to edit, understanding how to produce, but actually having a team who is good at that and enjoys yeah. that. And that's their strengths. And I think that's something that many business owners struggle uh, with. They speaking of um of resilience, is that they feel they have to do everything and they have to do all necessary uh, parts of their business to a level that an expert might do them too. So we feel we have to do our own books, we have our own to do our own marketing, our own sales, answering the phone, design, presentations, et cetera. Um, and that is going to affect people's self-confidence if they can't do them to those standards. So I've learned to let go of some things, and it sounds like you have. There are things that other people can edit better than we can. Um, and it's not necessarily something that people would pay you for, your, your best focusing on things that get you in front of paying clients. If I said to you, of all the things that you do, the strings to your business, you've got uh, writing books, you have a podcast, community radio show, which you host, um, and so on. Which of those things do you think generates the most um, or the highest number of qualified clients for your business? It would be the books, but that's the actually through, through the contacts of having written the book. So I'm very lucky to have a wonderful publisher. I work for Pearson and, uh, and the books published by, Pe- well, all my books are published by Pearson. The Mindfulness, Resilience, Wellbeing Trilogy are published by the Financial Times as well as Pearson. And they have a lot of links with people who are looking for training providers. And because of my style, they seem to enjoy that. 
or at least the people who've booked me seem to enjoy that. I get the recommendations based on that. The book alone, maybe it may be unfair of me to say, but I don't think the book alone is what's getting me in front of people. It's the contacts of having written the book, having it endorsed by the right people and having those people say, do you know what she can teach as well? And when people recognize that I can teach, that actually brings me into getting in front of them. So in a way, the book's the voice of the books is very much like myself as a trainer. That it's they're very practical. Mm. They are very much here's an exercise. Think about this. Here's an activity. Here's an anecdote. And so they're very much exactly as I would as I would deliver training. So you get a flavour of what I'm like. But um, I would say it was definitely the books that would get me in front of the right people because of the credibility of having the book in the first place, as much as anything else. And then, what made you write three and not just one? <laughs> Well, I've written four. In fact. Four, in fact. Wow. <laughs> um, okay. it's, it's really sad because it's like three and that one. So <laughs> that one, um, Be a Great Manager, was my first book. And it was just pure wanting to write a book. I've, I love writing. I love reading. It's something I've always wanted to do. I took my PhD and I struggled with the academic style of writing. I mm. uh, Like a skill, I learned it and I did it enough to pass. But then I felt more comfortable reverting to what I would say was a more journalistic, more training style of writing. But that really worked for Pearson. And this is a piece of advice that I say to anybody uh, that's trying to write a book is don't don't be proud. The book that you really want to write may not be the first book you write. And so I sent out a lot of proposals and it was Pearson who came back to me and said, well, we we love your style we want you to write this book that we would like you to do, not necessarily the book you wanted to do. Would you do it? And of course, yes, absolutely. And I wrote it. It was published and that was Be a Great Manager Now. But that led to, well, how about writing the, uh, one of the leader's guides? Okay, let's do mindfulness because that was the buzzword in back in 2018 yeah. and so on. So it sounds like uh, Pearson or in this case, a publishing company said to you, here's what we think the market needs. Here's how we want you to address it. And, uh, and then you wrote it accordingly. Yes. In a okay. way though, that's very much a business mentality. And yeah. I always say certainly of teaching, it's almost easier to teach somebody with the skills of teaching the subject than it is to teach someone with the subject, the skills of teaching. And it's the same thing with writing. I think if you can write you can probably write about anything unless it's really, really technical, but don't be afraid to try to, to write what somebody wants you to write if they're going to publish you and then prove yourself. Make sure you deliver on time. Make sure you're easy to work with. Make sure you you respond to all the queries and, and so on. And then you might get the opportunity to do more. And it's it's again, it's about making those first contacts and doing the work and then seeing what grows from there. And how do you get your book in front of people? I know all of us um, have bought books. I mean, who hasn't bought a book in some shape or form? Um, books turn up in different places. They could be on a library in a, in a co-working space, which is around the corner from me. They could be in an airport lounge. They could be in a bookshop, of course. How do you get the books to the right people that are right for your business, your brand? 
I'm very lucky in that mm. because of Pearson, they do a lot of marketing, which means they mm. get me into things like WH Smith Travel. That, that was I was number 10 in the business charts recently. That helps, and, yeah. <laughs> which which really helps. You have to do a lot of work yourself, though. So that means my website is set up with the books, with what I do there as well. And the books very much mirror the sessions that I deliver. I deliver a lot of training for people who then might buy the book at the end of it, because what I train comes from the book. So mm. it's almost a bit like you, uh, you, your day job might be the thing that, that funds your hobby and, and so on. It's, it's about you doing the work as well. It's about you promoting yourself as much as anything else. Saying that though, I don't like the kind of over self-promotion. Hey, I've done this, rude about this kind of, of course you have to do it to some extent, but I like personally to let my work speak for itself. The books don't make me the money, the training does. So that's something that I would always keep in mind as well. Sale of books, yeah. of business books in particular, it's not it's not going to make your fortune. It's not like JK Rowling and and Harry <laughs> Potter or something like that. Um A you're lucky if you sell a couple of thousand copies. Very um, lucky. Yeah. You know, and and secondly if you do that you've only pretty much just worked off what they've paid you to write it in the first place before you even get any royalties. So it's great to have them, gives me the credibility, but it's the, again, it's the training that pays my bills. So coming to training, mm. you are a proponent of interactive training and you use things like escape games. And I have a confession to make. I've passed many places with in London or uh, in in Barcelona where I live with escape hatch or escape games or something. I've never actually gone in and done one. So a couple of questions. What, what is you, what is your take on what escape, escape, let's say, um, as an idea lends to team building, self-awareness, and particularly to business needs? In other words, what on earth has it to do with training and, and why is it actually useful? Uh, it's a really great question. And it's actually the reason why I use escapes in the first place. So let's just give the example of a recruitment situation. Mm -hmm. You can, you can fake it for the dur duration of the interview. You can be exactly what your CV says. You can be exactly what your public personal statement says for about two hours because you know you're going to get these questions. You're going to get this situation and you can deal with it. Put someone in an escape room. They're faced with puzzles. They're faced with challenges. They're faced, it may be with people they don't know. It may be people that they know very well. Suddenly all kinds of other behaviors come out. And that's what makes it interesting. You get the real behaviors. And what I do is you put, I have a tabletop escape. So just to wind it back a little bit, an okay. escape room is a little bit like the Crystal Maze game. You get put in a room, you're timed, you solve puzzles, you get out of the room. That's the basic of it. Mm -hmm. But on a tabletop, obviously you don't get locked in a room. You just get timed and you have to solve what the mystery is. Okay. However, uh, in every escape game, you have CCTV. That's part of the whole game itself. And with my tabletop, I, with everyone's permission, of course, use video camera and I will video people. So the way I do an escape session 
is we have a chat about team building and we say, well, what makes a good team? And what do you think makes a good team leader? And, and inevitably you get communication, you get praise, you get motivation, you get, um, uh, um, telling somebody if you've left, if you need their help, asking for help or telling somebody that you haven't been able to do something or, if they need to pick up work, it's that that kind of um, open communication. And that all comes up. You've got it on the bullet points. You've got it on the flip chart. Then I give them the escape game. Then I video them. And inevitably, what will happen is people will solve puzzles. No praise. No motivation. No, they, they've kind of, they're pleased they solve the puzzle. Nothing else. And then somebody else will come up and they will be really, really good at it. And everyone will go, wow, I had no idea they were really good at that because actually they're the person they ignore because that person's quiet or that person doesn't join in so much. So that's quite interesting. Mm. And then you get people who can't solve a puzzle and they'll just leave it and not tell anyone that they've, they've, they've not solved it. But then on the flip side, you might get somebody, and I had a leader doing this where their team reported back to them and said, oh, we've got this, this, and this. And the leader just said to them, no, it's like, I trust you. I trust you. So you just tell me your answers and I will go with that. And again, once you video that, when you show them, you can reflect on that and it becomes a really great starting point for conversation. You can say to them, well, you all said praise was one of the most important things of a team. Why didn't you praise? And then they'll look at themselves and they'll be able to reflect and go, well, actually, at that point, I think I was so stressed about the puzzle I was doing, I didn't even think to praise somebody. Okay, what does that tell you about your interactions in the team? How does that play out in your day-to-day workplace? I had somebody who got a bit naughty, got really obsessed with trying to crack a code, just trying to pick a lock, basically, but spent their whole time doing it. Again, you can ask them, okay, well, how did that feel and how did that contribute to the team? Because for a good 45 minutes, they were on their own and you were doing this. And suddenly they reflected and said, oh my goodness, I can actually care so much about the font of an invitation. I forget to send the invitations out. And it's those realizations, that reflection back in a safe space. In an escape game, you could be set in a prison. You could be, my, my one is you're set in a conference and somebody has um, done something very embarrassing for the company. So you have to find out who the traitor was. Uh, and there's no repercussion. There's no, if you go wrong, you're not going to be put in jail. If you go wrong, you're not going to be thrown out by the security guard. So it's a safe space, but it's a pressured space. You can add in extra pressures, such as I like putting an alarm on and then everyone has to hide under the table. It just makes me laugh to see senior leaders hide under the table. That's that. They physically hide under a table. Physically hide under the table because that's the instruction and that's part of the game. But also what that does is it distracts them. So again, you can reflect on that afterwards and say to them, okay, so when that alarm went off and you were mid puzzle and mid doing something and you had to all hide under the table and then you came back, how easy was it to come back to that? very difficult. I struggled with it. Okay. So what happens when you put a meeting immediately in the middle of something while somebody's working on a project? Can you really expect them to go back to that project and work in the same flow as they had before? It really allows people to reflect on their behaviors and hopefully make changes. But if nothing else, they gain the self-awareness of not only what that behavior may lead to, but the consequences and how that behavior is perceived by other people. So for me, escape games are great because they reveal not only behaviors, but authentic and real behaviors. Because as I said, under pressure, the mask drops and you suddenly become yourself, but it's a safe space to do it. 
So this tabletop escape game, is this something you've designed yourself or do you buy it in? No, I designed it myself. But then okay. again, um, that's a little bit unfair because I was at the very beginning of the escape games when they came to the UK. I, I found out about them. My husband found out about them. We played them. Then we we owned one. So we ran one for a, a year and okay. had team building in situ. And so because of that, I know how to create puzzles. I know how the games work. And so I designed that one myself. Right. So I guess over time with feedback and iterations, it's it's become something now where it's almost a product in itself. You sell this as, a, as an experience to paying clients. I, yes, in that I can sell myself as the escape session. Right. That's how we. That's how I would actually deliver it uh, okay. I, as a at a conference. So I, I have ten packs for up to eight people per table. So we can take up to eighty people. I have delivered to up to eighty people in a conference. You get that excitement as each table plays against each other. It's a nice break from whatever it is they were doing. But what's more important from that is they get the feedback. They always get the feedback and then they can start reflecting on their behaviors. So there's a little bit of self-development in there. Uh, but you can just do it with one team. You can do it with many and so on. So that's what I would sell. But I, what I also sell is the structure or license the structure of the escape room as, as a teaching, um, fac uh, facilitation. Right. And so there. I would explain how to do the, you talk about the team building. Some people, I, I have the FIRO B psychometric I'm, I'm qualified in. So I might use that. Somebody might use DISC to talk about teams. If you want to go deeper into the psychometrics of teams and that's part of the structure, then they talk about what makes a good team, what they look for in each other in terms of a team, play the escape game, record it give mm -hmm. them the feedback. The feedback is quite structured again. And so people are then licensed to use that structure uh, with my with my logo on it, basically, gotcha. um, and mm -hmm. and sell it to their own people. But they just pay me for the license. That was all. And, and Fire B, that's, if I recall, used in context of leadership development, right? Um, it's used in teams, largely. Teams. It's okay. relational. All right. Relational, it, right. Yes, okay. yeah, it's relational. So it's all about how we... Schultz, who created the Fire OB Psychometric, mm. said that relationships are as important to us as food and water to survival. Mm. However, we all need different amounts of it. So on the one hand, you've got people who want loads and loads of people around them all the time, and that's how they feel the best, and that's how they perform at the best. But then there's others who just want one or two people, and and that's it. And the Fire OB looks at three particular dimensions, um, affection, inclusion, and control or leadership. But the best thing about the fire bee, which I think is really clever. So again, this really speaks to my desire for that self-reflection is you look at not just how much you want it, but how much you display it as well, because that allows people to think, well, I want, I want all of this love and affection, but I don't put any across. I don't show any. So that's when you're able to say to somebody, okay, can you really expect it if you're not showing it? Because aren't people going to think, well, that person doesn't show it. They, they probably don't want it. So it allows people, again, that little bit of extra insight. So everything I do is largely about kind of saying to people, let's have a look at this in a safe space and start from there. One more thing before we wrap up is, is I find um, quite compelling is your use of actors. And I've done this in the past myself, and it's such a difference from the role play that most of us do. You know, we... 
we put ourselves under pressure to design a role play. But when we use actors, if that's something we can afford or there's budget for it, it becomes a real play. Where do you find actors can be relevant to someone offering a coaching program, a training program to a paying client? Well, the point is the paying client is not there to attend a drama class. And that's the key driver of using actors as far as I'm concerned. I have taught GCSE drama, and that's not what a training session is all about. The training session is supposed to be, when you're doing experiential learning, again, creation of a safe space Mm -hmm. to engage in behaviors which maybe you've never encountered before, you've never had to use before. Sometimes if other people are watching, as in forum theater, taking it from Boel, getting suggestions from the floor as to what you might be able to try. And the only way you can do that as you is if you have actors to play all the other parts. And that's why, to me, it's so important because the Last And I've seen it happen. What you get is, well, let's do something about customer service. You be the customer and you be you. Be you. Whereas if you work with actors, and I've, I sometimes just work with one actor and that's fine. You get, you brief them. You speak to the client in the first instance and say, well, what are the areas that you want to work on? Is it that they just don't get on? Is it because you're trying to run disciplinaries and they're worried, your team are worried about how, a slightly more challenging uh, uh, team member might respond. Uh, are you dealing with particularly difficult customers or are you dealing with particularly different customers? And the actor can be briefed in that particular way to elicit n- natural behaviors from the team. And then you can pause the actor because the actor's used to doing that. Stop, let's take some suggestions from the floor. They can, the, the person who's going through the real play, which I love, I love that. I'm going to use that, uh, is, is able then to stop, reflect, think about it, have another go. Mm. But again, safe space. The actor's never going to be offended. The actor's never going to get upset with something. And again, you get that practice, which you may not have. My, the reason why I really wanted to use experiential learning is because one phrase in the literature review of my of my PhD was that people feel well-trained but unprepared. They feel they know the theory so well, but they can't go out there and do it. And when they do it, it has a consequence. If they're a teacher and they do it wrong, if they're a nurse and they do it wrong, there's a consequence. Even on a smaller scale, if you're a new manager and you do it wrong, there can be shame. There can be those things as well. It's not yeah. just financial or or worse or legal or something. There's no. It, it won't. It won't just necessarily be the big ramifications. It can be little ones. But if you get that experiential practice in a safe space, you can reflect on yourself. You can ask, "Why did I do that? Could I do it differently? Oh, let me try it differently." And people try it, and it feels awkward. But at least when they've done it once, they know they can do it again. And that brings me right back to public speaking and why I set up a studio is because the key thing I recognize in all of the experts and the academic people in the mental health arena, they're brilliant. But if they can't impart it, there's a barrier there. It's just theory. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why if I can give them the practice in front of the cameras, even on this little live stream, which is what I do, when they get in front of BBC News, they can put their point across and they can do it with confidence and they'll do it clearly. And there's so much good work out there. We do need to voice it. There is. And as you say that, I'm I'm thinking of um, the kinds of training 
or experiential learning where this is really crucial. Anything like um, giving difficult feedback, having difficult conversations, people who are practicing um, for a grilling maybe from um, a board uh, and they're really terrified about how they'll perform and how they'll come across. And it's funny how in those crucial moments, people people's careers are on the line. And so when you have an actor, that person's really intensely embodying that uh, context, that, that personality. They're so good at bringing that, that uh, situation to life. And the person really feels as if they're in that situation, having that difficult conversation, giving that uh, talk, giving that pitch. And um, it adds a whole different dimension. Can I ask you, Audrey, wh where do you find actors that, that um, someone listening to this says, this is a great idea. Thank you, Audrey. But where do I get actors that would help me to do this kind of thing and bring experiential learning to my offerings? I've been very lucky in that because I come from the drama side of things, I have a right. lot of actors that I know that I can call on. And to be honest, if you give me a call, I can probably put you in touch with some. There is a wonderful comedy club called Groovy Comedy, and they are already looking at being the actors. They're training their comedians in improvisation in order to be able to do that work. So they are somebody I would highly recommend. And if you get in touch with me, I'll happily put you in touch with them. So that's a bunch of actors already there looking for looking for a, a trainer. And so it's one of those jobs where it, it's paid. So again, a lot of people would be willing to do that. The difficulty I have, and the reason I say Groovy is so great is because Groovy Comedy is run by a woman who has come from the corporate world. She's a corporate engineer and also is a consultant and delivers training. So I know she has that understanding of business and what the needs are of a business. So it's not your conventional acting job, although it can be paid as well as an acting job. And so you, I would say you just need to be careful with the type of actors. You, they need to have the maturity to know that they are there to support the client in dealing with things that that client's not dealt with before. And you need to know that actor can read the room. You know that you need to know the actor can follow direction, can stop and start, can have perhaps even the instinct to draw extra out and know when to stop if they if they sense they're going a little bit too far. Wow. Uh, well, you've convinced me of one thing. I want to have someone on the show soon on the subject of improv and acting and training, because I think that is a powerful um, angle that experiential learning brings to what we do for a living. So we'll talk about that uh, off air. But Audrey, before we wrap up, where can people find out more about you and what you offer? The best place is my personal website, which is www.draudreyt.com because you are going to get links to absolutely everything, my books, my studio, my podcast, and so on. So that's probably the best place to start. Or you can find me on all the socials at Dr. Audrey T. Audrey, thank you so much for being my guest on the show. Thanks for having me. Huge thanks to Audrey for being our guest this week on the show. And you can find out more about Audrey by visiting her website online. You can check out Wellbeing Media 
and also draudreyt.com. All links mentioned will, of course, be referenced and provided on the episode page over at www.trainingbusiness.com. If you have any suggestions, I'm sure you do, in terms of guests or in terms of topics you'd like addressed, then please drop me a line. My email address is mark at trainingbusiness.com. Until next Thursday, look after yourself. Keep training, keep coaching, keep going. Bye for now. Thanks once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. See you next time.